tombs and treasures, texts and tells. You're listening to The Dirt with Dr. Dave. Digging through the archaeology, the history, the sacred stories of the ancient Near East will uncover a past that you never knew before. Get ready for The Dirt. Welcome to The Dirt. I'm your host, Dr. David Maltzberger. Thanks for joining us, and today we're going to be taking a look at stylite monks, those monks you may have heard about in the Byzantine period of the 5th and 6th century who climbed up a column and actually lived on the top of it to get away from the evils of this world. And we're going to discover a few things new about those monks and about the region in which the movement first began. In ancient Colicia. I'll be joined by my colleague, Dr. Daniel Browning. Dr. Browning was a professor of archaeology and biblical studies for 26 years. He's now retired and is pursuing independent research. And Dan and I have worked together ooh, all across the ancient Near East, and we'll be taking a look at this issue of the Stylite Monks. Dan, you and I have worked together for uh, quite a few years now, uh, probably since 1984. That's correct, 1984. It was a good chance for us to be together, and since then, we've worked together on a Dolman project in Jordan, and now we've moved ourselves off into Turkey on several different jaunts. But one in particular that I'd like to talk about today is these big columns that you and I have come across out at different sites and a connection that you have made between these columns and someone called Simeon the Stylite. Give us a little bit of background about what we're what we're talking about and who in the heck is this character Simeon Stylite? All right. Well, uh, I, I like to refer to this as a bizarre phenomenon, and it actually has a name. The practice is called stylitism. It's even a word. And it all began with St. Simeon uh, the Elder, because there is a younger. Uh, he was an ascetic, a Christian ascetic, in Syria in the early 5th century. Now, that, that part is not unusual at all. Asceticism was all the rage in those days, and uh, the sources seem to indicate that some ascetics tried to outdo each other in their asceticism. The greater sacrifices they could make, the more, that is, of the comforts of life, the more famous they would become. Now, for, for whatever reason, and that's, I think, subject to some debate, Simeon got annoyed with crowds coming to beseech him in his ascetic practices because these guys became like the holy men to go and see and consult on problems. And, and one interesting study, by the way, even suggests that they became arbiters for common folks dealing with uh, the government, which, of course, at that time was the Byzantine Christian government. And so a Christian, a saint-like arbiter was a valuable friend to have. But at any rate, this annoyed some of them, and Simeon went up on a short column early in the 5th century and sat on top and refused to come down. Uh, I presume he had disciples who uh, handed food up to him and so forth. Uh, as time went on, his uh, column was lengthened and eventually topped out at 40 
cubits, which is uh, 17, over 17 and a half meters. And uh, that's pretty tall. That's way on up there. Yeah, it's like 50 feet or so. Yeah, it's like 50 feet. Now, the practice then really caught on in the following centuries. Uh, there are a few copycats that that uh, began the practice immediately after Simeon, but stylitism continued to to be a thing, and even later sources just casually mentioned that so-and-so was a stylite. I mean, they were known figures in the religious community of the eastern stretches of the Byzantine world, meaning uh, North Syria into uh, Asia Minor or Turkey today, and you even have have them down into Palestine and Egypt, and eventually it spread uh, as far away as Lyon in, in France, and in later centuries, and this is probably why the word continues for us, into the Slavic countries as kind of a thing there. But uh, the main course of stylitism happens between the 5th and the 8th century. And of course, the 8th century is when you have the the Muslim invasion uh, that comes into many of those areas, and that ended the practice in, in some regions. So anyway, it turns out that uh, not all of these stylites had these gigantically huge columns. Some of them had rather modest ones that, uh, you know, were just a few feet or meters uh, high. And uh, I, I discovered that after the finds that I'm sure we're about to discuss. Yeah, let's talk about that. The first, uh, probably the first column that we came on. Now, we have to let everybody know that you and I were traveling together in Turkey. We were looking actually into a whole different concept related to the presence of early Jews in uh, rough Kalikia, sometime in the Byzantine period. But then we, we approached one church, and out in front of the remains of this ancient church, is a huge column that lays down on the ground. Tell us about that. Yes. Now, now we were there. The uh, church is uh, at a at an almost unknown ruin called Kashkirli, and near it is a lintel which had these relief inscriptions that you and I were looking at. And uh, naturally, we uh, looked at the really impressive church ruins there. And in fact, throughout that area of rough Kalikia, there are some great church ruins. And it really didn't occur to me, and I guess not to you, that that column out front was unusual. I mean, you, you practically have to step over it to get to the church. And there's this weird little chapel with a with an apse in front of the church. And it's really oddly blocking the entrance to the church. I mean, it's like it got put there as an afterthought. Well, I did some digging and found a Turkish article written by a Byzantinist who uh, just casually commented that he thought that that column might have been for a stylite, and that caused me to start looking into it. And, you know, you look at it, and it's not anything like 50 feet tall. In fact, part of it may be missing, so it's it's hard to know how tall that one is, But I and we haven't even measured it, but I would guess uh, maybe 20 feet, to put it in English terms. But uh, he made a convincing argument 
And then going back to the fight a couple of times since then, we've sort of confirmed there are no other matching columns like that nearby. In other words, it's a singleton. It's all by itself. And it apparently fell out of that little chapel, which is ruined, uh, and rolled to its present position that's maybe 10 meters away, uh, downhill and on and off to the side a little bit. So it it almost certainly was associated with that chapel. Yeah, you know, I'll, I've, we've got a picture, and uh, we'll have that posted for our listeners at the website, www.thedirtwithdrdave.com, and they can go and they can take a look. I oh, think good. it's got a picture of you standing on top of it. That'll give them a little idea of what we're talking about. Excellent. Glad they can see that. And they should look because this is a very visual subject. Anyway, it turns out, uh, doing the research, most of the stylite sites that have been reasonably identified are in North Syria. And some of them indeed have small chapel-like structures uh, built either to support or immediately around the column. And these stylites apparently became, as I said before, not only important civic fig- figures, but they became centerpieces of attention. So churches and sometimes even monasteries sprang up around them and, to be crass about it, profited from the stylites' no- notoriety. And uh, that may account for the practices spread, a little bit like the, you know, the super church or mega church thing that's going on in Protestant Christianity in the U.S. Uh, You know, the more flash you've got, the more people are going to come. So you're saying that this was a movement that sort of started in one location and spread up out of Syria into modern-day Turkey, into uh, Kalikia, which is really not that far away from the region where uh, Simeon was. That's right. Yes. Now, uh, of course, and this is a totally different subject, of course, the modern state boundaries that separate Turkey and Syria and Iraq are imposed, you know, in the post-World War I era by European powers. But even in ancient times, it was recognized that Syria had their stylites. There were those that were in Mesopotamia, but it's really what we would call northern Mesopotamia. Uh, and there are a few in Kalikia, but in the eastern part that's normally referred to as smooth Kalikia. And these are all mentioned in sources. Some of them, not the ones in Kalikia, though, have been reasonably identified with existing ruins. Um, and all of that is has most recently been documented uh, about 15 or 20 years ago in an article summarizing all of those sites. The guy that did that, as best I can tell, is no longer even in academia. So the subject has kind of died, um, which is why there's not more on it. So when I started looking, I thought, man, this Turkish uh, Byzantinist must have been correct because this stuff looks just like, or at least within the parameters of the variants of the types of structures that had been previously identified uh, at sites matching the textual references in Syria. There are other locations that actually have the remains of pillars as well. Yes. 
the most famous one, of course, is St. Simeon's original, actually not original because he started on his small pillar and then moved to a, a huge complex. It's visible from Google Earth. Uh, they built a church around him with radiating chapels with his column at the center. Uh, and the column is gone except for just a little stub. So there's no 50-foot stone there. But uh, but the site is uh, is totally known and, and was revered after his death with the continuing church. And I presume that that must have happened at other places. So if you are at a, you know, if you're a ecclesiastical governing body of a church in uh, rough Calicia and you're looking for a way to make yourself look better, you might say, hey, let's try to get a stylite to come here. And and something like that may have happened, and the ones there would have perhaps escaped reference in the sources. And, and indeed, the, the uh, scholar that summarized them identifies a number of sites that are not mentioned in sources but match the ones that are in terms of their remains, and the ones that we have looked at fall in that category as well. Let's talk about these Dylite monks for just a second. I mean, there are ancient records, ancient histories of some of the, that describe some of these monks, and then we even have letters written from Simeon himself, letters that, that he wrote even to the emperor. Yes who was in correspondence with him, it sounds like. But what drove these guys to climb up these these uh, pillars? I mean, why did asceticism grow in the in the late fourth and fifth century? well, you're you're asking a really tough question. I have some thoughts on that matter, but they delve into psychology and uh, human evolution and all that stuff. People want a leader. Look, our own country right now, it's obvious that a figurehead who can put himself above others and and make a big splash can get attention and get followers just because he's, to try to make the connection here, raised himself up above others. Does that make sense? Uh, I mean, I think uh, other, and maybe by contrast to other ascetics, some other ascetics would isolate themselves in a cave and even would wall themselves into a cave. Well, you can't see that. You can't go and look up to that. So stylitism might have begun with a genuine, I need to get away from all these people and focus on my devotion to the Lord kind of motivation. But when you've got the people coming to look up to you, there's no doubt a great temptation and a temptation for others to mimic that. I wonder if the demise of martyrdom in the Christian religion at the beginning of the fourth century, since Christianity became a legal religion, religio licitae, and it became part of the official nature of the Roman Empire, if with the demise of martyrdom, Christian followers, the Christian faithful at the deepest level, priests and monks weren't looking for some sort of new way to express their extreme devotion to God. And so they hit on these ideas of walling themselves up in a building, 
for months or years at a time. Uh, I read one story about Simeon that says in the beginning he he may have dug a hole down into the ground and it got deeper and deeper, but he came to realize maybe that you can only go so deep and then you can't ever get out, you know? And so he hit on this idea of going up rather than down. Yes, I think it's obvious you've been doing your research because, indeed, a fair amount of scholarly speculation here, but it's informed and makes sense that asceticism in general replaced martyrdom as the pinnacle of Christian faith and the people that you heroically look to. And so, yes, in the Byzantine age, these folks were the the replacement for the famous martyrs. And even better, because they're still alive and they can uh, speak to the government on your behalf. It's kind of odd, too. I mean, these guys have the ear of the emperor, and he communicates back and forth with them by letter. I mean, like, of course, I guess I shouldn't be so surprised at that. We have uh, uh, presidents today who surround themselves with religious advisors, even though the United States is a secular country. Right. Uh, What the people like, you have to pay attention to. So Simeon then is sitting on top of a column. Now, how big is the space at the top of this column? What size, you know, platform does he have? What do we know about that? In my research, I was shocked to discover how small the diameter of the columns were. And that's, that's probably why it never really occurred to me to identify that column as a stylite column until I read the Turkish article. And uh, as you know, the columns that we've seen at two other sites that, that sort of match this just description are even slightly smaller. There's apparently you could build a little shack on top. And some people have even taken what little description there is and proposed different ways of constructing a little shack uh, so that the person is not just sitting there in the weather like they do appear on many icons that honor their their memory, but they have a little a little place. And Simeon, uh, we have the most about, he had a platform where one side of it was his little enclosed chamber, just big enough for him to sit in or stand in, and then an open porch, if you will, uh, where those who were allowed to ascend could speak to him and petition him for whatever. So so they actually got on the top of the column with him, you think? Yes, and some that is definitely the case. And that brings me back to the to the remains. The column that we have spoken of has uh, cutouts in the side of it, which could be for the insertion of structural support beams. So it turns out that's one way to sort of justify identifying something as an as a stylite column if it has niches in it that can be used for structural supports. So you build some sort of a canopy up over the top of the column, and that provides a little bit of shade or enclosure for the monk on the top. And he's right. going to live up there. He's going to eat up there. 
We know that Simeon probably wrote letters from up there and that people might, what, lean a ladder against the side of this column and climb up to him to... But now that's the, that's the really tough part. Some, some of the textual sources do mention ladders. Now, there is one site that I've been to, which sadly you have not, and we need to go there together. It's west of Antioch. It's in Turkey. And it's the monastery of St. Simeon Stylites the Younger. And it is almost, well, it's equally well preserved as the one we haven't seen of the elder in Syria. But the column base is still there, and it's huge. And opposite it, just a few meters, is a stairway made of stone. And even with nothing else built on, you can see that the stairway would get a petitioner up to where they could eyeball someone on a low column and at least be able to look up at someone on a much taller column. And it's also possible that there was a structure where they could actually continue by wooden ladder to actually reach the top. We just don't know. So stylite monks were necessarily, obviously, hermits. They were in pretty much constant communication, uh, at least when they weren't at prayer, I suppose, or sleeping, with, with their disciples. They had followers who looked after their needs and sought their wisdom and their advice and their teaching. Yes, yes. And uh, some of them were so sought after that they had to set up visiting hours. We, we learned this from some of the life. Now, these guys were so famous that there's, there's something like 30 lives of individual dialects that exist in the preserved ancient literature. And there are many others who are just referenced in other writings. Now, this is something that was primarily part of the Eastern Church in the Roman Empire. It really didn't spread originally into the West so much. I understand that a lot of pictures or icons of these stylite monks uh, actually were seen in the West and sort of led people toward the veneration of icons or pictures of these holy men. Yeah, I, now that's a subject that I don't know that much about, but I do know that stylite icons were kind of all the rage and continued to be so even after the practice had faded somewhat. You know, it's just, it's really crazy to me that it was almost, I suppose, a fad that began in northern Syria and spreads upwards back into Kalikia. Now, I think I remember that Simeon was originally from Kalikia, or at least from Adana province, which is next door to Kalikia. Is that right? Now, that I can't swear to, but it does sound correct. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think he was born in, in Sis, which is in the Adana province, and was, uh, you know, a, Ro a Roman province in that day. And he went south when he became a monk. I mean, sometime, uh, I think some of the records say that he started out his life as the son of a poor shepherd, and he, he developed sort of a zeal for Christianity, like a lot of kids do when he was a, a very young teenager, after he had read a copy of the Beatitudes, and he he entered the monastery before he was even 16 years old, and he gave himself up to this sort of extreme ascetic 
practice that was so extravagant that some people just sort of, you know, rejected him from their communal life. As a matter of fact, I think he was asked to leave his very, very first monastery. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Like a lot of innovators, he is disrespected at first for doing something really bizarre. But then it caught on with popular appeal, apparently. Now, look, let's let's talk for a moment about what people really want to know. This guy lives up on top of a pillar, but he's still a human. Yeah. And he's got to use the bathroom sometime. Let's talk about that for a second. How did these guys take care of their physical needs when they were living up on top of a pillar? Well, as the saying goes, it happens whether you want it to or not. So buckets on ropes. Uh, And my immediate thought on all this is you had to have some really dedicated disciples to tend to that stuff. So you're saying they had to carry out the, the bedpan for him? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, I did see in one in one article, uh, it suggested in one of the histories that it's possible that Simeon came down off of this column from time to time. One even suggested sometimes maybe twice a day. And I thought, well, maybe he's taking care of those, you know, mundane needs when he comes down the column. And then it's back up the column to pursue his uh, his godly living. Well, my impression is that that's kind of an interpretation of the sources. And others don't really think that that's what was going on there. Some sources, and and I'm not talking about Simeon himself. Now, it it may be that when he got older and was a little less able to hit the bucket, uh, they brought him down or something. But there are others that are very explicit that that people went up and did not come down for any reason whatsoever. Yeah, and Simeon now he spent he spent a long time up on the top of this pillar, didn't he? Oh yeah, I think uh, in the end his career was like forty years. Now he did move pillars, so he had to come down for pillar changing and lengthening and all that sort of thing, obviously. But those are, and again, if you take the cynical view here that that this was something of a slow motion show for the for the masses those breaks from the top you don't want to advertise those you know everybody needs to see him as constantly on watch above everyone he was a trailblazer i guess in this field i mean you say you mentioned that there's another simeon the younger that followed him this practice really caught on among uh christian monks in the east didn't it And I have to say, if I had my choice of being walled up in a cave or sitting on top of a column, the column sounds pretty good, I guess, until you get to extremes of weather. And and there are some stories of uh, storms blowing columns over and that sort of thing. And don't ask me specifics because I can't cite them on the fly here, but it was apparently perilous. I I meant to to mention this when you compared them to hermits. I've actually visited a hermit in Lebanon, and the guy is actually from South America, 
and he wanted to be a hermit, but the official Catholic Church doesn't allow that anymore. They don't have a category of holy man that's hermit. So this guy went to the Maronite Church, which does allow hermits, and became a hermit. And he lives in a cave down this gully in northern Lebanon, but you can go visit him. There's a path, well-worn path there, and he loves visitors. In fact, I even noticed he had quite an eye for the ladies. Uh, so, so just <laughs> definitely had an eye for the ladies. I mean, the guy's like seventy years old or something. But uh, okay, he's been living in a cave. Yeah, Come that's on, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, we say ascetic and hermit, but there's there is at least the temptation to use that position to make yourself appealing. And and they had something to say. I mean, obviously, their followers thought that their wisdom was good enough to listen to. I know that, that Simeon uh, responded to some of the big controversies that were going on in his day in the Eastern Church. I mean, he writes to the emperor uh, regarding the meeting of the, uh, of the Council of Ephesus right. and the uh, condemnation of Nestorius, who was one of the big so-called heretics of his day because of what he believed about the nature of Christ. And that was probably touchy because the area where the stylites appear is a, an area that tends towards the Nestorian and like theological views. Uh, now, I'm straying into an area that I'm not an expert on, but but I do know that, uh, that that area was a stronghold of Nestorianism and monophysitism uh, later. So uh, there's a lot of politics going on with different religious strains. I suppose you plan to do a little bit more research into this when we uh, get to Turkey this next time? Indeed. And and what are you what are you looking for? What what other information do you, you hope to find? Well, the the area that you and I have this great interest in, Rough Calicia, is is a wonderful area for exploring things because that area was highly populated, heavily Christianized during the late antique period, and then largely abandoned later. So there are plenty of ruins that are in actually quite good condition and uh, under-documented. Now, some people would argue, well, no, people have documented them. But what typically happens is they go to these sites and they draw the churches and they ignore everything else. And I, I suspect that there are other stylite columns to be found that have just escaped documentation because the big standing architecture gets all of the the attention. So describe some of these sites that we visited. I mean, they are not on the major thoroughfares. They don't get visited a lot. Describe sort of the terrain in which you find some of these uh, ancient churches today. All right. Well, the two others that you and I have personally visited with columns, uh, one of them has the name Orindibi. Now, this this place is so not well known that it's even hard to find that name listed anywhere. 
in the first archaeological surveys, it's called Somek Village because there's a town or a village named Somek nearby. And finally, the archaeologists, and I'm not even sure who made this decision, started calling this ruin Orendibi. Uh, you had been to it before I had, and you said something about having to trudge across a bean field. And indeed, we did. Now, there's these areas are not completely deserted, but we had to go across farmers' fields and then arrived on a rocky area. And Turkey, or this part of Turkey, does not have super tall trees, but it does have gnarly trees. <laughs> it's got a lot of holly bushes and uh, things that are going to catch you when you go through the, the brush. I have some names for those things that are, would be inappropriate for a... Uh, family show, but uh, these little scrub oaks that all seem to have simulated thorns and then other bushes that actually have thorns are growing around, in, and through the ruins. Generally, we arrive at these sites somewhat scratched up, uh, but once there, a good portion of the ruins are quite identifiable. The churches are usually very easy to to see from a distance, and they draw all of the attention. But uh, the reason we found the column at Orendibi is that nearby is a standing doorway with an intact lintel stone, and we went there because it has one of the inscriptions we were interested in. Really, just on the other side of some bushes from that and closer to the church is another small structure with a single, doesn't match any other around column, obviously fallen out of it, and I propose that it also is a possible stylite site. The most recent one that we went to, this would have been you and I in the fall of 2017, we went to a place called Taparelli. Now, Taparelli is a huge expanse of ruins, and they are largely unexplored and certainly unmapped. And we went up to the Acropolis and fought our way through the trees and found all kind of interesting stuff. And as I remember it. We came down from the Acropolis, passing uh, probably the largest church structure in the lower part of the city, and I suddenly noticed there's this platform and an enormous column almost buried in the dirt that had fallen apparently off of it. I found a, a guy, uh, I won't name him because he's rather reclusive from what I can tell, online just by looking for some photographs of something else, and he had a had some pictures of Taparelli, so I went through them, and he had made a little plan, and he referred to that one as monumental column. And indeed, the, there is a possibility that that or the other ones even are not stylite columns, but something else. They might be a, a big, the emperor is great kind of column, except in every case, including that one, they are immediately in front of the entrance to a church. Yeah, it's a huge column. It's a huge column, and that's a pretty big platform that uh, that it had to come off of. Right, and uh, you would also expect a public monument to have big inscriptions, of course, telling you what it's all about around, and we don't we don't have that either. Right, and that seems to indicate that they're not some sort of public monument uh, that might have had a statue on the top of it. Thumbs up for the work you've done. Uh, I think you've brought up some really interesting stuff, and uh, it's an important study, and I look forward to hearing uh, more from you. Uh, you've already presented one paper at the uh, 
annual meeting of the American Schools of Oriental Research, and I know that uh, you have some other in the works as well. I do, and uh, I think there's a, there's some future in this study, and I'm glad to have a willing and able partner in it. So I hope to join you in the field. Well, thanks for talking with me today on The Dirt. And those of you who've been listening with us, you can always uh, go to our website, thedirtwithdrdave.com. There'll be some photographs of Dr. Browning and some of these different sites, and you can get an idea of what these early Byzantine monks gave themselves to as a climb to the top to escape some of the evils of this world. Dan, thanks for talking with us today. You're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. With that, we'll end this episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you discovered something that you can sift from the remains of the ages. I look forward to speaking with you next week when we're going to climb up out of the dirt, holding in our hands a newly discovered cuneiform tablet, one that adds a new twist to the well-known story of the Epic of Gilgamesh. And we'll take a look at what the ancients thought made a savage man into a civilized creature. If you have a question or a comment, feel free to send them to me, Dr. Dave at the dirt with drdave.com. You can find a link on our website. So until then, keep digging. The Dirt with Dr. Dave podcast is written, recorded, and shoveled to you by yours truly. David Maltzberger. Any errors, omissions, mistakes, or unintentional conjuring of ancient Assyrian demons is my own darned fault. Our theme music was composed, performed, and recorded by Colin Tucker. You can subscribe to our podcast at www.thedirtwithdrdave.com. Mm-hmm.